who asked me about the same issue, and it made it clear to me that I must not have expressed or like explained myself very well, because for 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 this same number of people, you know, a lot of people to be confused about it, um, there, there must have been something going on, and so um, I want to respond to a few questions that were asked, just just for the sake of wanting to to make sure that we're being clear about certain things. Um, so. The first thing is, you know, I, I really boldly and strongly express like my understanding of salvation and the idea of predestination that God chooses us and we don't choose him and that we don't have a choice in this. Um, I was asked, well, what about evangelism? What, you know, if, if John Smith, if like if he's been chosen by God, he's been elected by God, um, he's going to be saved regardless. So, you know, why, why do we evangelize? Uh, and the, the obvious answer, and I think the most, the one that is like... Really, the, the most important is that God commanded us to, right? So there's a, there's, I mean, it, it, Paul says to us very clearly, like, how is somebody going to believe unless they've heard? And how can they hear unless they've been preached to, right? How, how can they hear unless there's someone to preach? And so, and then, I mean, the, 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 um, the Great Commission, Jesus goes, like, go and make disciples of all nations. Like, there's multiple different places where we have really, really, really clear, specific commands to go out and share the gospel. So... If there were no other reason than that, that's enough, right? That's en- I hope that's enough for you. If God tells us to do something, we go and do it. And even if we don't understand how the, all the inner workings go and how all of the things operate, like what does it look like? We, we can't see inside of a man or a woman's heart when they're, when they're saved. We don't know how all of that happens, right? We have ideas, there's evidences, but at the end of the day, regardless of what you believe about this, we're, gonna, we're all going to go and evangelize. We all want to go and share the gospel with people and tell people about Jesus. Um, I would say, secondly, if you have ever been in the presence of somebody, you preach the gospel to them, right? You tell them the good news of Jesus Christ, and then at the end of that, they fall on their knees and they repent and they believe. Well, what better thing is there in your life? Well, if you have experienced that, if you have been there one-on-one with somebody, and that has happened, I mean... In that moment, are you worried about all the petty little things that are going on, all the little problems that you have? You're just, you're just bringing glory to God in, in watching a, a life be transformed. And so, it, for no other reason, no, like, that we get to be a part of that, that you get to experience that, that your faith is deepened, that your love for God is deepened in all of those moments. So, whether, no matter what is going on, if, we're, if, if we get to be a part of that transformation and watch it, it's a blessing for us. Um, another question that was asked to me last week is, and, and the next two I think we're going to be answered a little bit more when we get into this text, but another one was asked me, you know, how, do we, how, how would I know then if I'm one of the elect? Well, Paul is going to tell us, he, he told us a little bit in the first four verses, but he's really going to lay it out for us in 5 through 11. Look, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are the non-Christians, which he describes as people who are walking in the flesh, and there are Christians, who are people who are walking in the spirit. So we're going to define these things. We're going to look at the attributes of both. If you this morning find yourself like, yes, I am doing the things that, as Paul describes, as a man who is walking in the spirit. Not that you're doing them perfectly, not that you're doing them all of the time, but that you are doing these things. You find yourself caring about the things of God. You, you find yourself, have your mind set on the spirit of God. Um, that's how you can know that you have been saved, right? That's how you can know you are elect. Paul tells us, he describes for us um, who these people are, what they look like, what the attributes of them are. And then the last concern, and this is the one that I got a lot of questions about, a lot of different people asking me the same question, was this idea of, um, are, we are always walking in the Spirit. 
Um, I think that is what Paul is telling us. I think I, I'm, I'm like 99% confident that this is what he is trying to get his message across. He is not talking about what, what is it that you are doing. He is explaining to us our status. So verse 1 of chapter 8 says, you are no longer condemned, right? You, therefore, you are now no longer condemned. In this moment, you are not being condemned. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with are you being obedient or disobedient. This is a declaration from God about who you are in Christ. And so he, that's the, his first statement. And then he goes on to explain it further and further and further. And walking in the Spirit is part of that declaration. So to, for God to say that as Christians we are always walking in the Spirit, it's not to say that we are then therefore never sinning, but even in our sin we are walking in the Spirit. And that might sound really odd, but think about the times in which you are sinning. Think about the times when temptation is there and you, and you don't fight it, right? You give in and you sin. The entire time, if you're anything like me, the Holy Spirit is on you, right? It's not that you have completely abandoned God and that you have completely abandoned any, any influence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Even in those moments, even in the midst of sin, the Holy Spirit is on you. He's trying to get you to stop the whole time. There is this, you are walking in the Spirit and this is a declaration of who we are. Not about what you do, but about who God has declared you to be. And he is going to go on and further explain this this morning. And so I think it's really, really important that we understand that the idea that we are always walking in the Spirit is not about because we are so good or we are being obedient all the time, but rather we are hidden in Christ Jesus, right? That is what we see in verse 1. There is no condemnation for the Christian because they are in Christ. So walking in the Spirit is a declaration of who you are. It is a part of your identity as a Christian. Because God has declared it to be true. It's not based on how often you obey or disobey. It's based on God's declaration, His gift. It is the part of the gift of salvation for us. That this is who we are. This is our identity. Now there is... There was some confusion and discussion about, well, is there, are Christians able to walk in the flesh in some moments and walk in the spirit in others? And I think that 5 through 11 make it absolutely clear that that is not possible. That we are, as Christians, we are always walking in the spirit. We are never walking in the flesh, at least in the way that Paul is describing it here. Because what he is saying is the person who walks in the flesh is a non-Christian. The person who walks in the spirit is a Christian. We can't fluctuate between these. We, when we are saved, we are saved. Right? God has us. We read that from John 10 last week that nobody can snatch us out of his hands. That, the, that, that Christ has gathered his sheep and they are his and there's nobody that can take you out of that. There's no one that can destroy that salvation. So, with a little bit of clarification, let's jump into then these verses and let's see what's going on here. Um, so, Paul goes back and forth quite a bit. He talks about the person who's walking in the flesh, the person who's walking in the spirit. <clears throat> and he jumps back and forth between the two. I think for, for just like keeping everything straight in our minds, I think it's it, it probably helpful to, to just let's look at all of the attributes of the person who walks in the flesh. And then we'll go back and we'll look at all the attributes of the person who walks in the spirit. So that we're not trying to flip-flop, we're not trying to go back and forth. What, is the, what does the non-Christian do? What does the Christian do? Let's, let's start by looking at all of the things that the non-Christian or that the person who is walking in the flesh does. Um, so the first thing... 
that we see is that the one who walks in, their fle- in the flesh has their minds set on the flesh. Now that is not necessarily a term that is intuitive to us or a phrase that would even be intuitive to us. What does it mean to have your mind set on something? Well, what do you, what do you usually say to somebody who is caring about the things that you're doing and not things that they're doing? What do we tell them? Mind your own business, right? As gently and as lovingly as we can, right? But like, that's a phrase that we use. That's a phrase that we understand and that we're very familiar with. What does that mean? Stop putting your mind on my business and turn your mind back to your business, right? And so we, th- this is the same kind of idea that Paul is talking about. A person who, ha- who has their mind set on the flesh is a person who is focused on the fleshly, on the sinful things all of the time. It is consuming who they are. Now you might be thinking, well, but what about those moments where I'm sinning? What about those moments where my mind goes to the flesh? And I think it's a little bit different I don't know. I mean, I can only speak from my own experience, right? I don't know how everybody else experiences life. I assume it's very similar, um, but most of my sin, I would say like 95 or more percent of it, is just me not reacting properly. In, In other words, when I'm at work, I'm not driving around thinking about mind on the flesh like, The thing I am so ready to do, I am excited to get home and to lose my patience and yell at my kids and and be angry when I'm not supposed to be. When my anger comes out, when the fits of rage come out in me when, when I'm dealing with my children, when I'm not patient, when I'm not loving and kind with them, it's not something I've been dwelling upon all day. I walk in the house and they're punching each other or they're jumping on the couch or they're doing the things that they do and it's just, it's a, it's a, There is a weakness that happens, but my mind is not set upon it, right? You see the difference versus somebody who is a non-Christian who you might say, well, their mind is set on, I'm going to, like, all I can think about all day long is I just want to go home and I want to do whatever it is, whatever sinful thing, I mean, alcohol, drugs, whatever it is, I don't know, all the different things that consume the mind of a non-Christian, it's a very different, it looks very different. You see, even though we sin, it doesn't mean that we are defined as people who have our mind set on the flesh. So I hope you see the difference. I hope you understand that this is, how he, this is how this person is being described. It is somebody who is regularly, constantly keeping their mind set on these things. Um, if we look at Galatians 5 with me for a moment. Because in Galatians, Paul sort of lists out a big list of, of what he calls sins that are fleshly, if you will. Galatians 5. Starting in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. 
sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against, against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. So there's a lot of language in here that makes me see that this is a very paralleled passage to what we've just read. In other words, Paul is making this command to walk in the Spirit, but this is not a command, I don't think this, this is not a command to Christians, I think this is an evangelical message, because what he is saying here is, the ones who are doing that list of things that he said, they do not inherit the kingdom of God. What is a promise that we have as children of God? Will we inherit the kingdom of God? Yes, of course we will. So the, who he, what he is saying in Galatians here is, the people who are doing these things do not inherit the kingdom of God. By definition, that is a non-Christian. We as Christians do not have to worry about our inheritance of the kingdom of God. That is a promise from God that is guaranteed to us. And so here, I think in Romans 8, and I believe also in Galatians 5, that Paul is giving an evangelical message to those who, who may hear this message, who may hear their letter being read, to hear it and say, I need to repent of these sins. And you might think, well, he's writing to the church. Isn't he writing to the believers? He's writing to the believers in the same way that every week I stand in this pulpit, not knowing... I mean, I'm speaking to a church. The assumption is that most, if not everyone in this room is a Christian. But I don't know that. And every week I give a call to the gospel. Because I don't know just because you're in the church means that you are saved. Just because the people of Rome who are in the Roman church, it doesn't mean that they're all saved. And the same thing for the church of Galatia. Paul writes in his letters very often evangelical statements. And this is what I believe he's doing. He is telling people, if your mind is set on the flesh, you are not a follower of Jesus Christ. Stop doing that. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. The next thing he says to set your mind on the flesh is death. So you have to ask yourself a question. As a Christian, are you under the law of sin and death anymore? Has Paul not brought this out to us? Where's it, verse 2, I believe? For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. He describes the person who has their mind set on the flesh as somebody who is dying. Who has death in their future. Christ has already promised to us. Paul has already told us. That if we are Christians. Death is out of the equation. We have been saved from that. We are no longer going to die. The person who has their mindset on the flesh. Is, is approaching death. It's a non-Christian. It's not us. It's not those who have their faith. In Jesus.
The next thing he says is that they are hostile to God. The person who has their mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. This is verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Somebody is, who is hostile to God. This is the definition, once again, of a non-Christian. Over and over and over again, Paul is describing the person who has their mindset on the flesh as ways in which we understand the non-Christian to act. No Christian is hostile to God. Even in our sin, we are not hostile to God. In our sin, we are forgiven the instant that is happening. We are not his enemy. Even as a Christian, even in the midst of our sin, we are not his enemy. We are saved by Jesus. The moment, in the midst of it, while it's happening, the salvation, the forgiveness is there. We are never hostile to God. We are never condemned again once we become saved, once we become united with Christ. And so this person who has their mind set on the flesh, it must be, it has to be a non-Christian. Now it made me think, because it, so in my job quite regularly at the hospital, um, you know, as a chaplain I walk into people's rooms or I meet people in their homes and I say, hi, my name is Chaplain. And it's just like they can't, they can't help themselves. Well, I believe in God. This, okay. And they don't even tell me their name, right? It's just I, sometimes this is sort of a reaction that people have. They just they want to make sure they get it out there right at the beginning. They want to make sure that I know that they, that they believe in God. Um, and, and it's a really, it's, I have these really interesting conversations. Because people will often tell me that. But then when they describe the way that they live, they describe the things that they believe, I think, I'm not so sure that you do. Um, and this, this is where this statement becomes problematic for us. Because we think the non-Christian is hostile to God, but I meet a lot of people who say that they believe in God, but don't, but don't seem to have any of the fruits of the Spirit. In fact, they seem to be producing all of the fruits that we saw in Galatians 5 that are of the non-Christian. And so it's this really interesting thing that happens. And, and really, I think what is happening, if you press a person who says to you, I believe in God, but they act in no way as if they do, they don't really. They believe in a God of their own making. They believe in a God that they imagined in their own mind. Because if you go to that person and say, oh, you, you do. Like, you believe in God, but you, but you also say you've never read the Bible and you don't understand that. Do you, do you believe in a God who is wrathful against sin? Who brings justice on, on the oppressor who, who doesn't ask for forgiveness? Do you believe in a God who, who, even though our culture has widely said that things like homosexuality are okay, do you believe in a God who condemns that and calls it sin and calls it an abomination? Well, then, well, no, I don't, I don't believe all that. So, I mean, they believe in a God. And really, what's really interesting is if you think this thing out, what they actually believe in is a God of their own making that agrees with them. And so, in a sense, they believe that they are God. 
right? They believe, they believe in a God that mirrors all the things that they think, all of their morals, all the things that they say are right and wrong. Oh, yes, I believe in God, and he agrees with everything that I think. So you just believe that you are God, right? That's the, the thing that is plaguing our entire society, is that people want to usurp God from his throne and put themselves there. I know what's right. I know what's best. I want to be in control. I am the one who sits at the center of the universe. This is what plagues the people that we know. The non-Christian, they believe that they are God. And, and so don't be fooled by somebody who would say to you, yes, I believe in God. Ask them if they believe in the God of the Bible. Ask them if they believe in the God in, way, in the way in which he describes himself in Scripture. I think a lot of the times you will find that that person is actually hostile to God. All non-Christians are hostile to God. The last big thing we see here that defines the non-Christian is the second part of verse 7, right? And then verse 8. They can't, they do not submit to God's law. Indeed, they cannot. The mind that is focused on the flesh cannot submit to God's law. That is an impossibility. It's not as if like, well, may, maybe they could in the right circumstance, but no, they cannot submit. They cannot please God. This, I mean, these are very definite statements that Paul is making. The non-Christian can never, ever submit to God's law. They can never do anything to please God. Now, God's law is fairly extensive, but let's just take one in particular thing. See, God commands us to repent. God commands us to ask forgiveness of our sins. This is what happens in the ideas of salvation, right? This is what is happening in the human heart when somebody goes from a mind who is focused on the flesh to a mind who is focused on the spirit, right? To somebody who is walking in the flesh, to somebody who is walking in the spirit. This is a law of God. It is a command of God that we would do this. And yet, Paul has just told us that the non-Christian can't do it. Cannot submit. We cannot please God. Let me just tell you, I don't, I don't enjoy bringing the ideas of predestination up. It's not like, oh, yes, I found, I found a spot where I can talk about it again, right? This is, but I do feel an obligation, and I feel a responsibility that when I see it in the text, as blatantly as I see it in front of me this morning, I have to bring it up. The person who is a non-Christian cannot submit they cannot please God. If a person is choosing to believe in Jesus, that means that in their unrepentant, unbelieving state, they submit themselves to God's law. That means they make a decision that would be pleasing to God. Paul just told us this is impossible. It cannot happen. He told us back in chapter 3 that a person does not understand God. A non-believer cannot understand any... How can, you, how can you accept and believe and choose to believe in forgiveness if you don't even understand it? It's not possible. He tells us back in Romans 3 that you, that you can't even seek after God. It's not possible. So what's going on here? 
God is saving people. We all were of the mind of the flesh at one point in our life, and God gave us a new mind. We didn't make a choice to have a new mind. We didn't make a choice to repent. God gave this to us. He opened our eyes. He did this in us, and we are saved. I'm trying to prepare us. I'm trying to prepare us because we, as we go through Romans 8, Paul is going to get more and more and more explicit about this. And as we get into Romans 9, he's going to lay the hammer down on this idea of predestination. There are going to be, in the coming weeks, entire sermons dedicated to this. Not because I want to lambast the, the, the congregation with this stuff, but because Paul is very, very explicitly bringing it out. He is wanting us to see that this is his explanation of salvation. That the man who has his mind set on the flesh cannot submit to God. It's not possible. God has to do it. He has to do it within us if it's going to happen. So I want you to know that, it, like I said, it's, it's coming, and we're going to talk about it some, I mean, sometimes weeks and weeks, week after week after week, because I believe it's here and because I feel the responsibility to make sure that I bring out the things that I see in the text that's in front of me. So now let's switch. So these are the things that define the non-Christian. These are the things that define the person who has their mind set on the, on the things of the flesh. What about the person who has their mind set on the spirit? What about the person who is walking in the Spirit? How does Paul define them? Well, again, I want to just make it very, very clear. I don't see any other way of understanding these verses other than the person who is walking in the Spirit, the person who has their mind set on the Spirit, is the Christian. This is a state in which we always live, regardless of whether we're, of whether we're falling in our sin or in our temptation or not. This is how God has defined us. And it's not because I, well, I just, that's, I just want to believe that. No, I think that it's here, without question, that that is exactly what Paul is saying. Let's start in verse 9, because I don't know how we read verse 9 and not understand that, that when he says that somebody's walking in the Spirit, this is a Christian. You, however, are not in the flesh, so you're not all of the things we just said. You're not dead. You're not hostile to God. You're not able to... You are able to submit to God's law. You are able to please God. So you're not that. You are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Who does the spirit of God dwell in? All Christians. Look at Ephesians 1 with me really quickly. We'll start in verse 11, Ephesians 1, 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. 
You hear the word of truth, the gospel about your salvation, and you believe in it, and you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You are given it in that moment. Verse 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Is that old, like, math? I'm not, I'm not great at what... If A equals B and B equals C, right, then A equals C. That's what's happening, right? If you are not of the flesh, then you are of the Spirit. He automatically dwells in you when you are a Christian. You are automatically in the Spirit. You are automatically walking in Him. So let's start there, I think, as our foundation. So we live according to the Spirit. We set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, this is hard because we recognize that we are weak, and we recognize that we are sinful, and we recognize that our mind wanders into sinful areas and that we are tempted and that we have thoughts that we know are not glorifying to God. And then we say to ourselves, wait a minute, how is this possible? How is it that, that Paul is telling me that my mind is set on the things of the Spirit when I know good and well that there are times when my mind is thinking about fleshly things? It's not about what we are doing and not doing. This is a status in which God has declared who we are. Our minds are set on the Spirit. That is a truth about who we are. Whether we feel it's true or not, whether we believe it in the moment, whether it's true or not. You see, what's really funny is that I think probably, I mean, I don't know everybody in here, but the people I know really well, I know would agree with this statement, right? We look out in the world and we say, we see men saying, I believe that I'm a woman. And we see women saying, I believe that I'm a man. And you know what? I really think that they believe it. Like, I think that they have, their minds believe that this is the reality. Does it make it true? No, of course it doesn't. Reality is a real thing. No matter how you feel, no matter what you think, there is a truth and there is a reality. Whether you're living in it or not, it doesn't change the fact that truth and reality are real. If you are living in a state where you think, I don't feel like my mind is set on the Spirit. If you are a believer in Jesus, your mind is set on the Spirit. Now... There may be days when that is stronger than others. There may be days when you are more focused on him than not. But the reality of who you are, the, the definition of you as a Christian, doesn't change based off of what you do. Why? Because when the Father looks down, he's not looking at you. He's looking at Jesus. We have to go back over and over and over again to verse 1, right? There is no condemnation when we are in Christ Jesus. You are hiding in him. Your identity is wrapped up in him. He's not seeing you and me and all of the brokenness and the sinfulness that we continue on in, even as Christians. He just looks down and he sees his son. And this, Paul says, gives us life. And it gives us peace. This is who we are. This is a declaration of what has happened to us. Now, once again, it doesn't mean that you, you well, if you don't fully realize these things at all times, then you must not be a Christian. No, it's an identity in which God has betrayed, but put on you. That you have life and that nobody can take that away. That you have peace even when you don't feel like you're at peace. 
God declares that you are at peace with Him. So once again, if you fall into the trap, which we all do, and I do as well, in the midst of my sin, I feel like, ah, I don't feel very peaceful in this moment. We're going to get to it. It's several chapters up, but it's a very, very, very well-known verse, right? Romans 12, 2. Does Paul say, when you don't feel at peace, go and do a bunch of good things in order to bring yourself back to a place where you are at peace? He says, renew your mind. What does that mean? Remind yourself of what is true. If you feel that there is not peace between you and God, there is not a list of things that you need to do in order to regain that peace. What you need to do is tell yourself, God has declared peace between him and me. I want to believe that more. God, give me a deeper faith to believe and to feel and to be in that peace and to rest in it. It's not about the things that you do. It's about who God has declared you to be. Now, the temptation then is to hear this over and over. Well, it's not about what I do. It's not about what I do. Well, then it doesn't matter what I do. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul went to great lengths to tell us over and over and over again, you don't get to just sin. You don't get to just do whatever you want because God has declared you righteous. He has justified you. He says there is no condemnation. Therefore, I'm just going to run around and do anything I want. doesn't matter if I sin. It doesn't break the relationship, but it does break a lot of things in your life, right? Not, not to mention the fact that God has declared certain things good and certain things bad. We should want to pursue the good and avoid the bad just because God has declared it to be true. Do you trust in the Lord? Do you trust that what he says is good? Then pursue those things. Not so that he will love you more. It's not so that you will be more justified or, or more righteous. That, that's, that's done with. That's been settled. We pursue the good things of God because it makes our life better. There are consequences here on this earth when we sin. You see, you might lie at work or cheat or whatever, and, and God is looking at you and saying, you know what, you and I are still at peace because of Jesus. But your boss might not look at you and say, hey, you and I are at peace. If you're lying, if you're stealing from your job. It's quite possible that you're going to lose that, right? There are consequences here on this earth. Your life will be worse. Your relationships here on earth will be broken and strained if you are not willing to follow after God's law. There are good reasons to be obedient, but it's not about making God love you more. Are you being more righteous? Are you being more justified? temptation is to hear this stuff and to read this stuff and go that direction. I was reading Charles Spurgeon's sermon on this chapter, and I wish I had wrote it down because he is very eloquent and, I am very, and I'm not, um, but gener- the idea that he put out, he says, he says, look, we don't change scripture to match our weakness. You read this stuff and you say, that's going to tempt me to want to sin. If I'm not condemned, no matter what I do, then I just, that's going to make me want to sin. I bet, I better change what the, what I, how I read the Bible so that I will be inspired to be obedient. That's not, that's backwards. It is broken, right? We don't change the word of God in order to, 
in, in order to fight back our weaknesses. When we have weaknesses in ourselves, we just say, God, fix those. Let me believe what the Bible says and let me pursue it even though there is, there is a chance that I would want to sin, even though it makes me, even though it makes my broken and, and, and unholy brain think like, oh, then, then I have all this opportunity to do all of these things. We don't change the Bible to meet our weaknesses. We just, we work on our weaknesses. And the last thing I want to say, and this is, this is what we get here in these last, well, really the last verse. And this is, I, I don't know how many times I've read the book of Romans, and this is the first time I've ever noticed this. Verse 11 says this, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. See, we're not Gnostic, right? We don't. We don't look at the flesh and say the flesh is evil and the spirit is good and we're going to fight back. See, before we were Christians, the flesh was evil, right? It was bringing about our death. When we start walking in the spirit, not only does God save us from that flesh that was trying to bring about sin, but he brings it back to life with our spirit. We gain the whole world. We don't have to say, well, then all of the fleshly desires of this world, I have to put those aside. To walk in the Spirit means I never think about any physical pleasure that God has put on this earth for me to enjoy. I only focus on spiritual matters all the time. No, go and eat a good meal with your family. We read the book of Ecclesiastes together last winter, right? That's like, he says it over and over again. Enjoy a meal. Enjoy the physical things of this world. You can enjoy a good meal and the food doesn't control you. Right? You can enjoy intimacy with your spouse and lust won't control you. When you're in Christ, you can enjoy the physical things of this world without the physical things of the world taking over. All these men who have been going hunting... I'm, Dave, I'm, I'm like the, your, your family. I, I hunt deer in South Texas where you, you got a heater in the deer stand, right? So, like, I, don't, I haven't hunted elk since I've been here because I was spoiled as a kid hunting. But right, there's so many. That's where a lot of people are, probably even this morning, out hunting, right? Enjoying nature. You can enjoy the physical pleasures of this world, skiing, mountain biking, hunting, all of those things. You don't have to put all of that aside and say, anything physical, anything fleshly, no longer. I can't touch it. I got to just be focused on the spirit only. God says, when you are walking in the spirit, he revives your physical self too, and you can enjoy those things without it controlling who you are. You see, the freedom that we have in Christ is not that he takes away from you, but in fact, he adds, he restores the things that were once killing you and now has made them actually enjoyable. We can actually pursue those things while still walking in the Spirit, while still loving God, and God is loving us, and we can enjoy those things, and they are good for us. They're an encouragement to us. So the broad, the broad takeaway, the thing that I think is the most important thing that we understand is that God has made declarations about who we are. There's nothing that you can do to break that. There's nothing you can do to spoil that relationship that you have with God because God sustains it. If it were up to you, it would get broken. It would be spoiled. But it's not up to us. It's up to our Father who is in heaven. He sustains the relationship that he started with us. He's not going to let it fall by the wayside. 
We are no longer condemned. We are walking in the Spirit. We no longer have the punishment. Why? Because Christ took it upon himself. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, I've got to find a way. I've got to find a way to repair this relationship that is broken between me and God. And I'm going to do all of these things. And I have, here's my list of things that I want to do. And here's the list of things that I want to avoid. It's nonsense. It's not going to work. You're never going to live up to that standard. But Jesus lived up to it perfectly. And he went to the cross and he died. And he took on all of your sin. We talked about this at our, our house group, and it's something I never really thought about before, but Tyler brought it up. Like, the sins that you commit tomorrow, he, he's already paid for. Because when Christ died on the cross, every sin of yours that he paid for on the cross were all future sins. They hadn't happened yet, right? All of the things that are coming, Christ has already paid for them. That's the measure in which his sacrifice has been effective. The things you haven't even done yet, the sins you haven't even committed until tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, Christ has paid for them. Your relationship with God is secure, but only if you're trusting in Christ. If you're trusting in yourself, it's completely destroyed. It's broken. It's you having your mind set on the flesh. It's you walking in the flesh. Don't do that. I implore you this morning, walk in the Spirit. Trust in God for your salvation. Trust in the sacrifice of Jesus, and that will be the thing, it is the only thing that can save you. If you're here this morning, and you are a Christian, you say to yourself, I know this to be true. I've been trusting in Jesus for a long time. I've been walking in the Spirit for a long time. Trust in that reality. At the same time, fight your sin. Don't just give up and say, well, then I can do whatever I want. Fight your sin while believing the reality is true, that you will no longer be condemned, no matter what you do. Let these truths shape your thinking. Hold these things in tension with one another, right? The Bible doesn't always say, like, look, everything fits together perfectly in our little minds. Our minds are, we, we are not enlight, as enlightened as we want to think we are. We don't understand to the degree in which we think we do. Our minds are still, to some degree, broken by the sinfulness, right? We don't have full understanding. When we read two things in the Bible that seem to be in paradox with one another, or to be in conflict with one another, we hold them both true at the same time. We know we will never be condemned, and yet God is calling us to fight our sin every moment of every day. These are both true. We want to hold both together. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we love you. And we know that we are undeserving of these facts that you have stated about us, about who we are. Lord, in these moments where we feel like we are not walking in the Spirit, when we feel like we are not at peace with you because of the sins we have committed, Lord, I ask that you would strengthen our faith. That we would pray in those moments to believe more deeply in the promises that you have made to us. Lord, Christ was the ultimate sacrifice. There's nothing we do after repentance and forgiveness that needs to repair our relationship with you. But Father, we fall into that trap. Lord, help us to believe these verses that we've seen this morning, that we are not condemned, that we are at peace, that we have life 
not only in our spirit, but even in our physical bodies, that we can enjoy the things of this world. And they no longer rule us, and they no longer control us. Lord, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for his sacrifice that has brought salvation to us, the unworthy. Lord, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So every week.